You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hey everybody, welcome to Sound of Sanity. Let me begin today with a little true story. In 1951, Theodore Sturgeon, a famed sci-fi author, somebody asked him the question, why do you write in this genre? 90% of science fiction is crud. To which Theodore Sturgeon replied, 90% of science fiction is crud, but then 90% of everything is crud. That has gone on to become known as Sturgeon's Law. 90% of everything is crud. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. And I want you to bear that in mind as as we talk today about a genre that sometimes can be crud, but also sometimes can be really great. And that genre is the genre of fantasy. And my name is Nathan, your humble and obedient host. That's Ben. Hi, everyone. Your humble and obedient associate producer. I am. And, of course, we've got our proud and rebellious pastor. It's me. Jacob Menzel. No, he's humble Nailed and obedient. It. We're going to talk about fantasy today, aren't we, guys? That's right. Well, first of all, what is the question that we are going to ultimately answer over the course of two episodes should we read it yeah and if so how those are the questions and so stay stay tuned folks we're gonna have to we're gonna like build this argument carefully the way that tolkien built out his world of middle earth we're gonna layer by layer build this out so years from now our kids will publish our silmarillion yeah <laughs> anything <laughs> we wrote on a napkin that's right about by the way that surgeon's law does not apply to this podcast 90% of what we do is great. 10% of it, crud. But not this 10%. And actually, that's that was a little joke, folks. 100% of everything we do is great. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to give you some context. We're going to talk about the history of speculative fiction, and specifically the fantasy genre. And we're going to talk about how it works and what it does. And we are going to build towards answering those questions that we raised at the beginning. We wanted to do that for a number number of reasons. Number one, it's really fun, and it's a genre that we all enjoy. Uh, number two, a lot of the content that you people out there consume is sci-fi or fantasy. If you like Marvel, if you like Star Wars, if you like TV Harry shows, Harry Potter. If Lord you, of the Rings. If you're not the kind of person that likes it, I can almost guarantee you have a kid that likes it. So it's worth understanding how it works. And if you don't have a kid, you probably have a friend. It's a big part of a lot of people's lives. It's also become a bigger part of people's lives. Over the last 10 years, the sales of sci-fi and fantasy books in particular have doubled. Jake, you also saw some stats recently on COVID reading. Yeah, uh, what COVID did to book sales is pretty interesting. All nonfiction and educational books dropped. The best-selling books the genres that took the biggest leaps were sci-fi, fantasy, and erotica in fiction. And in nonfiction, it was gardening and cooking. And that was it. Everything else. So every those genres all jumped and everything else dropped. Yeah, it's like people wanted to live in a fantasy world for some reason. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I wonder what part Marvel movies have played in that. It's the spike. Yeah. Well, one thing we're not going to talk as much about over this the course of these two episodes, although we've certainly talked about it in other places, is how literature and movies and all that stuff interact. I think we're going to be kind of focusing more on the genre at large and the literature side of it. But obviously, you can extrapolate all this to talk about movies and all that good stuff. I, I guess the only other thing I want to say about why we want to do this is, look, I don't want to be too grandiose about this, but it, and, and we'll talk about this more as we go on, but what a culture fantasizes about tells you a lot about the culture, right? If everybody's really intrigued by Harry Potter, it's not just because everybody wishes they could summon a unicorn out of thin air, although who doesn't? It's because there's something that's intrinsically morally interesting or intriguing or provocative about Harry Potter. And being able to talk about what that is and what that means and why that is, is important and helpful. What do we give ourselves to in our most extravagant daydreams as a people in Western civilization in the 21st century? These are questions worth answering. Let's go into a little segment that I like to call... What is speculative fiction? Hey, everybody. Welcome to What is Speculative Fiction? I'm your host, Nathan. That's Ben. That's Jake. Hey, fellas. Hi. Hey, here we are again. Yeah, here we are. And we're going to talk about... we never left. Here we are for the first time, Jake. My bad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Yay! And speaking of first times, this is the first time you're going to hear me give this context, unless you're listening to this episode, the second time, which you probably will, because it's going to be great. So, what is speculative fiction? Well, what is the segment called What is Speculative Fiction? It's a segment where we define what speculative fiction is, which I'm about to do. Wow. Listen, speculative fiction is set in our universe, Ben? The regular universe? Uh, you know, Nathan, I feel like that's not quite right, but I don't know why. Tell me more. <laughs> because it's set in an imaginative universe, you dunce. <laughs> that explains why I felt like I was wrong. <laughs> speculative fiction is a broad term. We are talking mostly about fantasy, but there are basically three types of speculative fiction. They have a lot of overlap between them, and sometimes one will be called one thing, and you could also you could argue that it's the other thing, or it'll have elements of the other thing. I'd say most examples of any one of them will contain probably examples of the other two. But those three things are... Science fiction, <laughs> horror, and fantasy? Science fiction, horror, and fantasy. And how do you tell those apart? Well, science fiction is the one with the science. Horror is the one that's scary. <laughs> And fantasy is the other one. (laughs) Like I said, the lines are really blurry. I think when a lot of people think about fantasy, they think about high fantasy, which is like your swords and your elves elves and your your dungeons and dragons kind of stuff. But there's urban fantasy. There's modern fantasy. There's all kinds of fantasy. Basically, for our purposes, it is speculative fiction, which means it's set in an imaginative world, a world that somehow violates the rules of what our regular world is does and usually people call it fantasy if it's not somehow related to science if it doesn't have the sheen of technology or science and if it's not scary (laughs) if it's scary then they call it horror or weird fiction or something like that if it's got science then they call it science fiction but fantasy i really think that's probably the best definition it's the other one it's the grab bag 
but the lines are really blurry, right? Because fantasy could have a really scary monster or some really horrific conceit. It could also have something like Star Wars. Do you call that sci-fi or do you call it fantasy? Or Marvel, do you call it sci-fi or fantasy? Because, you know, just because it has the sheen of science, that sheen may be pretty thin. Right. Use your nanotechnologies, Tony Stark, to do what? Anything. (laughs) (laughs) You guys not believe in like pim pim particles? You don't believe that we're going to find little particles that make you shrink or get huge? Anyway. Ben, obviously I believe in pim particles. I I hope you do. Please don't call that into question again on air. (laughs) I won't. I'm a scientist. Then act like one. The Pym Particle is the most revolutionary science ever developed. Help us put it to good use. Let you turn me into your errand boy, and now you try to steal my research. Well, it's a rainbow bridge in our <laughs> world, but you call it an Einstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing... What you mo- know is magic is just uh, technology that's beyond you, is our science. Marvel is actually a really great example because they are so blatant about, like, <laughs> like an endgame, they're like... Now we're not going to explain how any of this time travel works, but just understand this is these are the rules and this is how it works and it's not like that other thing and we're going to be really meta and make yeah. fun of Back to the Future, even though our time travel is going to make arguably even less sense than Back to the Future's time travel. True. Which, hot take, is not great time travel. <laughs> Fun movie, though. And I do believe in the power of love. Now, I also believe in the power of this segment called What is Speculative Fiction, which is why I'm going to continue... To do it. So there are, I guess, the second thing to say about speculative fiction. Number one, it is set in an imaginary universe. And if it's fantasy, then it's not sciencey and it's not scary. <laughs> the second thing that you need to understand about this kind of genre writing is that there are different reasons that authors write it. So let's go back to Marvel. Is Marvel about how cool it would be to have? the nanotechnology that Tony Stark has and all the ramifications that the world would experience if we had that nanotechnology. No, I don't think that they even care. No, I don't think that they care either. I think Marvel is about quips, characters. They're going to use the fantasy stuff or the sci-fi stuff or whatever you want to call it. They're going to use the speculative stuff to get to a fun, cool action story. And most people that really enjoy Marvel movies don't enjoy them because they're so intrigued intrinsically by the world building. Maybe some people do. I don't know. You know, when you watch something like Endgame and they're like, we're not even going to explain how this time travel stuff works. It's because you're here to actually hang out with the characters. And if you read somebody like C.S. Lewis, is he writing Narnia because he's so intrigued by the way that Narnia works and he just wants to build a perfect fantasy society and imagine and speculate what it would be like. No. No, he has these Christian themes that he wants to talk about and some character things that he wants to hit and some fun things from mythology he wants to draw on. And what you'll begin to find is that there's a lot of genre fiction, particularly speculative fiction, that isn't written as an end in and of itself, right? Like it's actually an action story or it's actually a character story or it's actually a drama but it's using speculative fiction to achieve its end. We're, we're about to do on the bookening in a couple months. We're going to read Never Let Me Go. Never Let Me Go. Yeah. By Ishiguro. That's a sci-fi novel, kind of, but Ishiguro is not a sci-fi. He doesn't care yeah. about the sci-fi of it all. What he cares about is what the idea of cloning 
presents us with and what it reveals about human nature how, right? how he can tell a, yeah how he can tell a story about human nature and well, there are some sci-fi authors who would like right. it's the difference between so there are some sci-fi authors who would start with the idea of cloning and then just follow that wherever it led and find out what it said about human nature you oppose that to someone like Ishiguro, who feels like he probably had something to say about human nature first. Yep. And, and then, then he, he just found a way. He just found a simple sci-fi conceit that allowed him to say what he wanted to say. That worked. There are people that write speculative fiction or that read speculative fiction as a means to an end, whatever end. You know, some people like to read Conan and the Barbarian stories because they like violence. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you. To hear the lamentation of the women. That is good. That is good. Some speculative fiction is just blatantly pornographic and doesn't have anything much to do with speculating about anything besides pornographic stuff. You're a loser. Loser. There's also speculative fiction that's written because somebody was really interested in a fantasy world and and how it worked, or somebody was really interested in a sci-fi w- world and how it worked and what it would be like or somebody was really interested in exploring some aspect of evil or of scariness and so they wrote this horror story not as a means of doing something else but because that was the thing that they want to explore now we don't need to live there for a long time i think my takeaway there is you can just begin to ask the question when you watch any fantasy thing or when you watch a marvel movie which is it It's kind of a helpful question to ask. Oh, like, for example, Marvel, I think, really wants to just get you to the quips and the characters. You watch those Zack Snyder DC movies, as dumb as they are, I think Zack Snyder and his merry pranksters are much more interested in actually speculating about, like, what would it be like to be Superman? What would it be like to be Batman? Now, their answers might be dumb. You're letting him kill Martha. Yeah, but that is more of what interests them, I think. Yeah, and so there's a whole subset of nerds that really like that stuff because they're not as interested in good character moments or good dialogue or they just actually want to be like, well, if a super-powered space alien god guy came down to Earth, uh, what would happen? How would people treat him? Point number one about speculative fiction, it's set in an imaginary universe. Point number two about speculative fiction There are different reasons you might write it or create it. Point number three, there are different reasons you might read it. And I'm not making any judgment about those. I'm just saying it's kind of handy to know. Like, for example, on the bookening, we've been reading Lord of the Rings. When I was a kid, I was much more interested in reading Lord of the Rings as a means to getting to non-fantasy stuff that I liked. I liked the heroism. I liked the banter between the characters. I liked the battles and the violence. That was what intrigued me. I didn't really care about the Ents or, you know, Tolkien's world building. And so far as I even noticed it, it was kind of a drag for me. Reading Tolkien now, I'm much less interested in the characters and the heroism and the, I mean, I still like that stuff, but actually what I really like is just spending time in Tolkien's world. My tastes have changed quite a bit and the book means something completely different. And it's just a handy way of being able to think about what the book's doing and whether it's succeeding in it. And it's interesting to speculate about what Tolkien liked. I mean, it seems to me that, as we've talked about on the booking a lot, he was more interested in the world building, actually. And yeah. if you get some heroism, like if, if, you, if you enjoy a good battle scene, if you're in it for Helm's Deep, 
That's great. But Tolkien only wrote Helm's Deep, incidentally, as a way to get to the story he wanted to tell in his world. This begins to explain why a lot of people like speculative fiction, sci-fi fantasy that's poorly written, that has bad prose. Why people like Isaac Asimov, who's just a bad writer, but he's a really interesting idea slinger. Me and Ben, Jake had to do some realty stuff today, and me and Ben had like a a 20-minute conversation. (laughs) About different authors that we've read and how bad they are. Right. (laughs) And how some of them are fun, but, well, I mean, also... Uh, this is getting ahead of ourselves, maybe, but some of these guys, they sling ideas, but what they're, I don't know. I was talking about a guy who has a famous sci-fi book that won the Hugo Award, and it's just about perversity. That's all it's about. Yeah. And there's a bunch of those guys who have won the Hugo Award. I don't know that they even care about their big ideas that much. It's hard to tell, because they have like a big cool idea, a sci-fi idea, and then it's just about gross stuff. Yeah, a lot of times somebody will have a you'll you'll pick up a book because it has a really intriguing notion, and then it'll turn out that the person just wanted to write about how much hot chicks would like them if they lived in this universe, um, <laughs> you know. Or every once in a while, you'll pick up a book because you think it's going to have great action or something like that, and it'll turn out the person was actually only interested in setting that table and establishing that world, and they could care less or be incapable of writing great action or great (laughs) characters or making anything interesting that's asimov for me like that dude can't do anything but he sure does know how to set the table so i guess those are three points to just keep in mind as we talk about speculative fiction number one what is it it's set in an imaginary universe what does it do well it does different things and you need to be aware of whether it's doing them as an end in in, as a speculative fiction end in in and of itself or towards another end Everybody with me so far? Yep. Okay, let's talk about the fantasy genre specifically, since that is actually our topic. And I, I will give a little teaser. In December, we are going to come back and do our big sci-fi month for Warhorn Media, assuming the Dune movie comes out in December and doesn't get... Bumped like everything else. Bumped mm-hmm. like everything else. Because we're going to read Dune for the bookening, we're going to watch the movie, and we thought we'd do some stuff talking more specifically about sci-fi. Maybe one day we'll do something talking more specifically about horror. We've actually already done that, though. I think our Dracula episode and a couple other episodes you can find in the Sound of Sanity archives. You can find us talking about what horror does specifically and why people like it. But today we're going to talk more about fantasy, which once again is the one that's not horror and not science-y. Uh, let me ask you guys, what is your baggage with fantasy literature? Grew up reading it, loved it, used it as an escape from the world. Tolkien was my favorite, and I read him over and over again. And we get depressed at the end of it, because I'd read the appendix where everyone died. And I'd think, all my friends are dead. <laughs> and I didn't. I, that's basically how I felt. I'd be depressed for like a week, two weeks after finishing Lord of the Rings. And I'm going to go out on a limb and call that unhealthy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm going to go out in, on a further limb and say it's completely healthy. <laughs> <laughs> that limb's going to break. <laughs> no! <laughs> Folks, Nathan just fell to his death. <laughs> he shouldn't have gone out on that limb. And now all my friends are dead. Now all my friends are dead. <laughs> it came through. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> my friends are dead, Jake. You're still here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what package did you bring to fantasy, Jake? Fantasy was dork stuff. I did try. I mean, if you want to just ask more broadly, my mm-hmm. history with speculative fiction, some R.L. Stein <laughs> horror. And I did try Asimov. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't take it. I just couldn't. I could. I could take it. I read a lot of Asimov as a kid. More like Asimovful. <laughs> Name More it. like as a mothball him. <laughs> and All then, right. And then Michael Crichton. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like in high school or something like that as a little bit of a break from like, I guess I, I maybe it would have been earlier than late high school. I don't know. Because Grisham was like middle school, early high school. And then occasionally Michael Crichton. Outside of that, fantasy never really did much for me or never really got into it i wasn't into star wars i wasn't probably the first time i ever thought fantasy was really cool and something that i connected with personally was right before return of the king came out in theaters and i had some friends that were getting together to go see it and super excited about it and i had no idea what it was dork stuff and I was probably making fun of them for it. And they're like, no, you're going to sit down and watch Fellowship and Two Towers with us. And by the end of it, you're going to want to go see Return of the King with us tonight at like the midnight. This is back when they held to those dates and it would be the midnight showing was the actual opening. So we did. We watched Fellowship and then Two Towers. And I was blown away by Peter Jackson's interpretation of Lord of the Rings. I loved it. And I was ready to go see Return of the King. I got all my Tolkien interpreted to me by Peter Jackson, and that was my, hey, fantasy's cool, or can be really cool kind of intro to this sort of thing. And now you do a Behind the Paywall Clone Wars review show. Yeah, that I had to convince you to get into. Yeah, I was like, oh, Jake, that's for that's dork stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you? And I was just like, but Nathan, you're a dork. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, I just think of that as stuff. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned Michael Crichton. I'll just take a quick sidebar to here to say he's a really good example of what I was talking about earlier. Because Michael Crichton was somebody who was really intrigued by the ideas and was writing because he wanted to speculate about what it would be like if we could clone dinosaurs. He was not interested, and he was pretty bad at writing characters and exciting action and stuff. But if you read like the original Jurassic Park, which I think a lot of people from our generation read those novels, things like Jurassic Park or Congo or Sphere or whatever, Jurassic Park timeline. is... Timeline. Yeah, Timeline, um, that, that great classic. There again, everything about Timeline is dumb, except for he comes up with a really interesting and authentic seeming... Foam. Yeah, exactly. Way of <laughs> justifying his time travel. To then yeah. tell the dippiest story about some kind of medieval <laughs> something or other. It's like, like it's a very generic story of medieval heroism. Yeah, but it's so generic. And you could tell, like, that's not what Michael Crichton's interested in. Yeah, I don't I don't remember this story, but I do remember quantum foam. Right. Holes in quantum foam. That's how you do it. You just got to find those but holes. You got to in... be careful because you might splice. Right. You do not want to splice at all. Uh, you read Jurassic Park. That thing is pages and pages and pages of Ian Malcolm explaining chaos theory. It'll be like seven pages of chaos theory and then you'll turn the page and it'll go to another chapter and it'll be like Dr. Grant was hiding from a scary dinosaur. 
The dinosaur approached. It was about to eat him. And then you'll turn the page. And meanwhile, Malcolm <laughs> was talking about chaos theory. <laughs> and then you'll That's go great. through like 12 pages <laughs> and it'll have diagrams. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding or exaggerating. It'll have little diagrams and stuff. Michael Crichton was really interested in chaos theory. He was really interested in cloning. He was really interested in the abuses of the scientific community. Like he had a lot of stuff he wanted to speculate about and a lot of trends that he saw in science that he wanted to take to their logical conclusion and see what would happen. He didn't care about the characters. He didn't care. Spielberg takes it. He ditches all that stuff and he makes it. Dinosaurs are cool. He made, yeah, <laughs> Spielberg has two things. Dinosaurs are cool. And because I'm a dad at this point and I have little kids, I'm going to make it into like a father, daughter, son story where Dr. Grant learns to, learns to love kids. Like yeah. Spielberg doesn't care how those dinosaurs came to be. Actually. <laughs> He's, he's happy to use the latest bestseller as a means to telling a ripping dinosaur story, but he cares about dinosaurs as an imagine. you know, he cares about the dinosaurs of his childhood, the rampaging monsters that were dinosaurs, and he cares about families and stuff. And Spielberg's a lot easier for most people to take because most people care about that stuff a lot what more than they care What if a modern about... family was threatened by dinosaurs? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> right. That's actually, I think, a lot more palatable for most people than yep. the hard, the, the the better speculative fiction of Michael Crichton. Like Michael Crichton is telling a real sci-fi story with Jurassic Park, and it's really boring. Feel- I, I I liked it as a kid. I remember. I liked I, it I th- too. I'm sure that you're right. I mean, it it has a lot of chaos theory, and <laughs> and Crichton's just so bad with his characters. And yeah, Crichton is a terrible writer. Uh, I mean, I could talk about Crichton, but I don't want to talk about Crichton. Let's let's go to a break and we'll come back and talk about this in a minute. We'll be back. Hey everybody, welcome to Emanologians. Today's episode is going to be awesome because we're going to write a fantasy novel together. Of course, it will have the one thing every fantasy novel totally needs. A girl in a metal bikini. <laughs> Uh, actually, CJ, modern fantasy tends to lean away from such tired, misogynist cliches. <laughs> uh, you're a tired, misogynist cliche. Ah! <laughs> How do you come up with these insults? <laughs> Your face is a tired, misogynist cliche. Hey, <laughs> idiots, let's put our energies to work creating the one thing we know the world wants from rage-filled white young males. A self-published novel. Now, what can we put in our fantasy story to make it stand out from the pack? Um... A wizard. Genius, CJ. And a princess. How are you pulling these out of thin air? A guy with a sword. I'm going to write great idea next to that one, because that's what I think it is. A great idea. I was thinking our novel could use your conventions of the fantastic to probe the reality of the way we live today. I'm going to write great idea next to that one, too, BJ, to remind me that's what we should replace it with when you finally think of one. The guy with the sword should totally meet the babe in the metal bikini, and he should say something charming and awesome like, uh, 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 nice, ni- nice bikini, babe. Oh, and the reason that he calls her babe is because she transforms into the pig from that movie. Marlon Brando? Kirstie Alley? Rebel Wilson? Guys, fat shaming is not what the hemianologians are all about. Uh, yeah, that's, that's more of a side project for us. So let's get back to what we were doing. Oh. I was eating bugs! Uh, you need to stop eating bugs, BJ. But it gives me superpowers! Like constipation, or partial blindness! <laughs> BJ, I need you to stop retreating into flights of fantasy, 
and focus on this fantasy novel. Oh, uh, the guy with the sword should have a totally awesome name like BJ the Brave. Whatever, BJ. The only people named BJ are stupid losers who smell like stupid prunes. <laughs> Shut up, PJ. I only smell like stupid prunes because of something I ate. Uh, was it stupid prunes? Ah, how do you read minds, brain magician? <laughs> okay, so what happens in the novel to BJ the Brave? Uh, he eats stupid prunes and sits around farting all day. <laughs> ah, the only character who does that is, uh, oh, let's see here. She's a the stupid head. <laughs> well, CJ the Stupid Head is obviously based on one person, uh, BJ. <laughs> ah, I hate you, CJ, almost as much as I love stupid prunes. So, what else should be in our fantasy novel? Well, it obviously should be totally dark and gritty, <laughs> aka, uh, good. Dark and gritty does equate automatically with good every single time, most especially in genre fiction. Great point, CJ. And there should be a bunch of uh, characters that you love, but they fight against impossible odds. But uh, just when it looks like all hope is lost and they're defeated and or they're going to be defeated, then they all just uh, they die choking on their own blood. Uh, just like always happens in real life. But BJ the Brave should not die. BJ the Brave doesn't have to die. How about instead he gets all his limbs chopped off? <laughs> BJ the Brave should go on an original journey that no storyteller has ever thought of. <laughs> like... He could save a princess from a castle. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, BJ, have you ever heard of Campbell's Hero's Journey? No, but I like their tomato soup and their clam chowder. Whatever, BJ. Who would want to read a story about a hero who rescues a princess? Let's have the princess get tortured. That way the story will have widespread appeal to people who like to read about princesses getting tortured. Plus, it would be more like what would happen in real life. Yeah, BJ. Like, what would happen in real life? What are we writing here? Fantasy? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, Earth to BJ? Yes. Hello, Earth. Are you er? Are you there, Earth? It is BJ. Uh, yeah. This is Earth. A fantasy is about facing the dark and gritty realities of everyday life, idiot. Okay. Well, I guess if it is a medieval time period, the princess should be haggard and have yellow teeth due to the lack of bathing, skin care, and dental hygiene. Oh, just like BJ's insurance plan. <laughs> Booyah! Shut up, BJ. The princess should be a buxom babe with perfect teeth. Actually, all the women should be bucks and babes with perfect teeth. Oh, uh, but I thought you guys said that. BJ, if you don't shut up, I'm going to put on my boxing gloves, and you know what happens then, right? Oh, uh, you still be in a box without getting your hands dirty. That's right. Booyah! So, uh, what do we have so far? So we have a princess gets tortured, and a guy gets his limbs hacked off. It's the perfect escapist literature. Eat your heart out, George R.R. R. Martin. There should also be a guy who eats his heart out. That gives BJ an idea. What's your idea, BJ? There should be a guy who eats his heart out. That's the same as CJ's idea. Uh, that's where I got it from. Booyah! Huh, huh, huh. Well, guys, I guess the next step is to email this to a publisher and make a trillion dollars. Aren't you guys afraid the whole grim dark subgenre has played out? Maybe what people really want from their fantasy is hope and light. I know. Hey, an email from the publisher. Do we want that trillion dollars in cash or money order? Ha, ha, ha. Hope is stupid. <laughs> BJ is sad. BJ, hope is for lifetime movies, prescription antidepressant commercials, and other things for women or idiots. Oh, okay, but I'm going out on a limb here and. Ah! Ha, ha. <laughs> BJ went out on a limb and it broke. <laughs> I told you we shouldn't have had this meeting in the Hematologians Treehouse. Tree Manalogians! <clears throat> Tree Manalogians!
Well, that's our baggage, guys. Let's talk, though, even more specifically about fantasy in a little segment I like to call A Brief History of Fantasy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to A Brief History of Fantasy. This is the segment where we give you a brief history of the fantasy genre, which is what we're about to do starting now. Now, Ben, tell us the thing we need to know about the history of the fantasy genre. I think the first thing that you need to know, Nathan, is it's not a straightforward journey from point A to point B, like Frodo's journey from the Shire to Mount Doom in Lord of the Rings. (laughs) That's right, Ben. It's more of a random grab bag of stuff that's all over the place. Some of it cheesy, some of it transcendent, some of it horrible, some of it completely random, like Frodo's stop in Tom Bombadil's house. Oh, Nathan, you are a card. Whatever do you mean, Jake? That I'm all aces? (laughs) Maybe he means you're not playing with a full deck. Oh, Ben. (laughs) So where do we start? The random grab bag that is the journey, that is the history of the fantasy genre. Well, let's narrow this down a little bit. Can we just focus on fantasy literature? Oh, sure. Although, as I said before, people shouldn't forget that fantasy was the immediate purview of Hollywood and television, basically as soon as those two mediums came into prominence, they started to do that kind of stuff in the 20th century. So, the interplay of literature and cinema, you can't really overstate it when you're talking about fantasy. No, but I'll tell you what you can overstate. A clear beginning of the fantasy genre. Meaning it's not that clear. Right, Jake? Well, that makes sense, because where do you begin? Do you begin with, like, Lord of the Rings? Or do you begin with something like Homer's Odyssey? Or the Epic of Gilgamesh. Ah, it's a Gilgamesh to try to figure it out. Elements of the fantastic have informed literature since the beginning of known history. If, if you do count things like Homer or the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's the oldest genre, really. But some scholars are going to argue against counting those things or any of the ancient myths, really, because they weren't written explicitly as fiction. Poets like Homer were working, as far as we can tell, from a combination of legend and history and actual religious belief, probably. Of course, history was harder to keep track of before there was a printing press, and organized religion wasn't really all that organized. I mean, if you talk about the Greek religion before Christ, you're talking about individual cults of individual gods in various city-states. So when you read something like Homer or even Roman poetry like Virgil's Aeneid or Ovid's Metamorphosis, it's a somewhat open question how much those guys were trying to write something that they thought was true and how much they were trying to get right or getting right, assuming they were trying much of it was embellishment or legend or state propaganda or pure myth or just something they thought was fun storytelling and how much their listeners would have accepted as such. Point being, ancient Romans didn't go to their local Barnes and Noblists and think, I'm going to get a copy of Ovid's Metamorphosis, that work of definite fantastical fiction by a guy that obviously wanted to write pure fantasy. That being said, obviously, almost all the tropes of heroic fantasy are already present and accounted for in things like the Odyssey. Sing to me of the man, muse the man of twists and turns, driven time and again off course, once he had plundered the hallowed heights of Troy. From there, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to... In a hole in the ground, there lived Harry Potter. That's right! So where do we actually want to start the story of fantasy literature, then? Well, we can talk about the Arthurian romances of the Middle Ages or Beowulf. Which, there again, those things have an interesting relationship with the truth. Because it's not like everyone believed that the headless green knight from the Arthur stories or Grendel, the monster from Beowulf, were real. Right, but they did believe in King Arthur, 
some of them, and, you know, they might have believed in Beowulf. And legends became myth. And myths became legends. And legends became legends. Myths had to go home. He couldn't play with legends anymore. And legends was sad. But Harry Potter was not trans. Okay, so a little thing called the Age of Enlightenment happened in the 17th century. And before that, you had all the stuff we were talking about. But that happened, and suddenly reason and rationalism and all those things were a big deal. Yeah, suddenly the line between fact and fiction is a lot less murky. And fiction of the fantastic is out of fashion. Yeah, it's really a fantasy dead zone during that period. There's not a lot of fairy tales during Enlightenment, not a lot of fantasy in children's literature. Yeah, but then in reaction, you get the Romantic era of the 1800s. And everybody's like, yo, reason. Reason's kind of lame. We like feelings and emotions and stuff, and we believe there's more to life than just, you know, intellectual stuff. There's big spiritual realities, and it's not just mechanical truth out there, you know, laws grinding against each other. Yeah, we're going to oppose this cult of reason and say hello to a cult of, like, emotionalism. Cults, in fact, cults in general, actually. Yeah, I mean, suddenly people are rediscovering and they're reinterpreting all the supernatural stuff, you know, your, your Homer and your Ovid and your Arthur legends and all that stuff from antiquity. They're rediscovering it and they're reinterpreting it. And supernatural fiction becomes a thing. Yeah, and popular thing, too. Fairy tales, ghost stories, reinterpretations of the Greco-Roman myths, the Arthurian legends, it's all popular. Fiction of the Fantastic is still kind of a red-headed stepchild on the book reading scene, though. Hold that thought, though, while we expand on it a little bit. In 1764, Horace Walpole publishes the first Gothic novel, The Castle of Entranto. And here's a quote. Quote, Pushing open the door gently, the Marquis saw a person kneeling before the altar. As he approached nearer, it seemed not a woman, but one in a long woolen weed whose back was toward him. The person seemed absorbed in prayer. The Marquis, expecting the holy person to come forth and meaning to excuse his uncivil interruption, said, Reverend Father, I sought the Lady Hippolyta. Hippolyta, replied a hollow voice, came us now to this castle to seek Hippolyta. And then the figure, turning slowly round, discovered to Frederick the fleshless jaws and empty sockets of a skeleton wrapped in a hermit's cowl. Ooh, scary. Yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to sleep tonight. So the castle of Entrato is full of skeletons and passageways and, you know, gothic stuff. And it was a huge hit. Setting off such a glut of spooky gothic novels by authors like Anne Radcliffe. It was such a mess of cliches and tropes that Jane Austen was inspired to write her famous parody, Northanger Abbey. Which is worth pointing out because the character in Northanger Abbey is kind of an idiot for getting too wrapped up in gothic melodrama. So a lot of people had some affection for gothic supernatural stories, but a smart, godly woman like Jane Austen is going to look down on it. Yeah, actually, when Walpole published Otranto, he pretended... It was a translation from some Italian guy and then only admitted that he wrote it when it became a bestseller. Yeah, the supernatural genre just wasn't that respectable. It was considered silly, not nutritious, the hashtag redheaded stepchild of real literature. Right. The closest it came to being respectable was when it could be relegated specifically to children's literature. If you could call it children's literature, then you didn't have to be embarrassed about it. 
A lot of the world's famous fairy tales were popularized around that time in the 1800s. Yeah, the 1800s gave us the tales of E.T.A. Hoffman, his most famous one you may have heard of. It's called The Nutcracker. You've also got The Brothers Grimm, their charming collection of German folklore, which probably a lot of our listeners have read. But maybe you haven't read the originals, which are full of double crosses and violent torture, and villains being dispatched with cruel and unusual punishments. You think when the evil queen in Snow White is forced to dance in iron hot shoes until she dies that that's a cruel and unusual punishment? Uh, well, let's at least say it's unusual, Jake. It's worth pointing out how scary and dark the Grimm brothers were because you can see how a lot of these stories are just like channeling pure id in a way that, yeah, it was appealing to children and it could be marketed to them, but it really worked for adults too and sometimes better for adults. But as we said, there wasn't a market for adult fantasy fiction back then. Yeah, and that didn't begin to change until the Victorian era with one George MacDonald, I think best known to a lot of evangelical Christians as that guy who influenced C.S. Lewis quite a bit. Yeah, he kind of influenced everybody quite a bit. Tolkien, Chesterton, Lord Dunsany, Robert E. Howard, you could make a giant list. If Tolkien is sort of like the Elvis of fantasy literature, then George MacDonald and William Morris, who we'll talk about in a minute, is like is like Robert Johnson or, you know, one of the old blues players that Elvis took and adapted the idea of popularizing rhythm and blues from. Right. George MacDonald gets that sheen because he comes from, you know, because we all love C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis likes MacDonald and he wrote some things that everybody still loves. But he was a really weird guy. He was a Scottish dude who, he, he grew up with all the Highland kind of fairy stories. But he was also a Congregationalist minister with roots in strict Calvinism, although his grandfather was a Catholic who then became a Presbyterian. Anyway, he wrote Fantasties, a fairy romance for men and women in 1858. And that's just what it was. It was one of the first true fairy romances for men and women without the pretense of trying to be for boys and girls, but also for mom and dad. And it's about this normal guy who gets drawn into fairy world and has to fight his own shadow and become a hero and pursue a beautiful statue lady. Yeah, it's really weird, and uh, it kind of piled it on pretty thick for my taste. Here's the scene where he suddenly finds himself transported from his bed to fairyland. Give it to us, Jake. Quote, I suddenly, as one awakens to the consciousness that the sea has been moaning by him for hours, or that the storm has been howling about his window all night, became aware of the sound of running water near me. In looking out of bed, I saw that a large green marble basin, in which I was wont to wash, and which stood on a low pedestal of the same material in a corner of my room, was overflowing like a spring, and that a stream of clear water was running over the carpet all the length of the room, finding its outlet I knew not where. That was one sentence. And, stranger still, where this carpet, which I had myself designed to imitate a field of grass and daisies, bordered the course of the little stream, the grass blades and daisies seemed to wave in a tiny breeze that followed the water's flow, while under the rivulet they bent and swayed with every motion of the changeful current, as if they were about to dissolve with it and, forsaking their fixed form, become fluent as the waters. That was the second sentence. Okay, I actually kind of like that, I have to say. <laughs> it makes me want to read Fantasies. I understand if you think it stinks, but... It doesn't stink, it's just that. It's, it's just that. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's pretty thick. Yeah, it's thick. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis didn't have that high an opinion of McDonald's prose style, but, even though he was a fan. But he was influential. Yeah, George MacDonald, as you can kind of begin to tell there, he, he knew how to 
pile it on and get at that weird, fey, numinous feeling of the unknown or supernatural forces at work that fantasy is really good at evoking, and people really liked it. People still love The Princess and the Goblin, which I grew up reading, and many of his other stories. I also owned a copy of that. So he was like the great Victorian gatekeeper of fantasy. But if you want to talk about like the indie band that inspired the popular band, you can't just talk about George MacDonald. You also have to talk about William Morris. The 19th century British textile designer? Man, yeah, that guy changed the textile industry forever. That's actually true. (laughs) If you look him up on Wikipedia, that's what he's famous for. But he was also a poet, a novelist, an early socialist. Back up to novelist. This guy wrote a novel called The Well at the World's End in 1896. So, so what? What if I told you that starring in that story was a king named Gandalf and a horse named Silverfax? Weird. Let's talk a little bit more about the world. Well, at the world's end, in addition to having those things, it's high fantasy. Maybe the first high fantasy novel before there was a thing called high fantasy. It's full of fey, mysterious, numinous, magical stuff. Doesn't just have a Gandalf. It also has a King Peter in a stone table. Yeah, it sure does. Again, for modern readers, this one might be a little more fun to talk about than to read, though. It's got this faux medieval thing going. Uh, Give us a sample sentence, Nathan. All right, Ben, let's see if you like this one. As to Ursula, his wife, she was ever as valiant and true as when they met in the dark night amidst of the Eastland wood. Eight goodly children she bore him and saw four generations of her kindred wax up. But even as it was with Ralph... Yeah, the guy's name is Ralph. But even as it was with Ralph, never was she less goodly of body, nay rather, but fairer than when first she came to Upmeads. And the day whereon any man saw her was a day of joyful feast to him. (laughs) A day to be remembered forever. (laughs) That's a little thick, right? (laughs) Oh, that's horrible. Well, that's also, he has no ear and... There's just a lot of problems with that. <laughs> but this was a big deal. Like, oh, man. This, this was like Tolkien's bag right here. Uh, yeah, I know, but McDonald can't actually write, and you can tell <laughs> by comparing them. <laughs> okay, so if I can foreshadow a little bit, you can imagine what a breath of fresh air those the cheerful, relatable hobbits would be beginning in 1937. But we're not there yet. No, not quite. So you got McDonald, you got William Morris. They're going to be big influences. But we're going now into the Victor- from the Victorian era, era into the 20th century. And so you've got this strain of high medieval kind of stuff. You know, you got your George MacDonald, you've got your William Morris. But actually, the most popular fantasy that's, that's being written is really cheerful and relatable and full of fun characters. It just also happens to be written for children. Children's stories of the fantastic were proliferating in the early 20th century. They were indeed. You got Oz stories, and there's a million of those. You got Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Wind in the Willows. Meanwhile, the Irish writer Lord Dunsany was keeping up the serious end of fantasy with books like The King of Elfland's Daughter. Yeah, what's important about Dunsany is he was a big influence on a lot of fantasy writers to come, including H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, Tolkien. His early work was in a really high style, so like he's quoting from the sacred text of a forgotten realm, sort of like Morris was attempting to do. But unlike Morris, especially, he was actually pretty good at making it work. Sample passage. Quote, Come to Elfland, the troll said, 
The child thought for a while. Other children had gone, and the elves always sent a changeling in their place so that nobody quite missed them, and nobody really knew. She thought a while of the wonder and wildness of Elfland, and then of her own house. No, said the child. Why not? said the troll. Mother made a jam roll this morning, said the child. She walked on gravely home. Had it not been for that chance jam roll, she had gone to Elfland. Jam, said the troll contemptuously, and thought of the tarns of Elfland, the great lily leaves lying flat upon their solemn waters, the huge blue lilies towering into the elf light above the green deep tarns. For jam, this child had forsaken them. Is ever the way of witches with any two things to care for the more mysterious of the two. We should say that enough hack writers ripped Dunsany off poorly that Ursula K. Le Guin later called him the, quote, the first terrible fate that befalleth unwary beginners in fantasy, end quote. <laughs> That's pretty good. But now we're finally getting to the stuff you've probably heard of. So 1924, a guy named Farnsworth Wright changed fantasy, sci-fi, and horror forever when he took over as editor of a flailing pulp magazine named Weird Tales. Pulp fiction existed in that era and published lots of fantasy and horror stories, but there wasn't one banner magazine for those genres. Weird Tales changed everything by becoming just that. Yes, and it's important to note that it wasn't high art. In some ways, the pulps at that time existed to fill the space that would later be filled by, you know, girly magazines and then now HBO and stuff like that. There was always an elaborate cover with a painting of some underdressed woman, you know, being menaced by giant spiders or a satanic cult or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But somewhere in that concrete jungle of prurience, some roses kind of sprang up. I don't know why I read that that way, but I did. (laughs) So chief among those roses, I guess, is the work of Robert E. Howard, who invented Conan the Barbarian. Yes, (laughs) Howard was this nerdy little kid from a broken home in Texas who liked books until sometime in his teens when he got into bodybuilding and boxing and stuff. I'm not saying he was an ensel or anything like that, but you could probably do worse than to associate him with those kinds of masculine feelings. Anyway, speaking of masculine feelings, Jake will now read an excerpt from the beginning of a random Conan story. Across the red drifts in mail-clad forms, two figures glared at each other. In that utter desolation, only they moved. The frosty sky was over them, the white illimitable plain around them, the dead men at their feet. Slowly through the corpses they came as ghosts might come to a tryst through the shambles of a dead world. In the brooding silence they stood face to face. Both were tall men, built like tigers. Their shields were gone, their corselets battered and dented, blood dried on their mail, their swords were stained red, their horned helmets showed the marks of fierce strokes. One was beardless and black-maned, the locks and beard of the other were red as the blood on the sunlit snow. Man, said he, tell me your name so that my brothers in Vanaheim may know who was the last of Wolfhair's band to fall before the sword of Heimdall. Not in Vanaheim, growled the black-haired warrior, but in Valhalla will you tell your brothers that you met Conan of Samaria. The emphasis in Conan was action, muscles, babes, monsters. 
Weird Tales was a magazine for men. And Conan had lots of what men wanted. And spawned a host of imitators, basically creating what's now known as the sword and sorcery genre. Not that there weren't plenty of swords and sorcery in the genre already, but this is when it sort of got codified with the emphasis on action and awesomeness. In my humble opinion, best sword and sorcery from those early pulp days is Fufford and the Grey Mouser by Fritz Lieber. It's just a little bit more funny and intellectual and also has lots of action and monster fights, maybe a few too many babes, so you gotta be careful with that, but got a sense of humor which is something that conan doesn't really have in case you couldn't tell (laughs) anyway when a lot of people think about fantasy i think this is what they think of this is the strain of fantasy the sword and sorcery stuff that would breed a billion cliches right when you think of towers and wizards and mages and thieves and dungeons and dragons and all those paperback covers that have a hero standing on a mound of enemies or skulls with a lady clinging to his leg you're thinking sword and sorcery so this stuff was popular, but still not respectable, obviously. That takes us through the World Wars. But just when it seemed like fantasy was going to drown in testosterone, something more elevated came along. Bum, bum, bada, bum. Ladies and gentlemen, at long last, I give you Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit came out back in 1937, as we alluded to earlier. Lord of the Rings was first published in 1954 and 1955, the three volumes. We're not going to take you through the story of the Lord of the Rings because it's pretty well known, and you can always listen to our booketing episodes about it. The thing to understand is that while a lot of fantasy authors were wallowing in macho land, Tolkien just sort of ignored all of that. Instead, he took the best of what came before in more serious fairy stories, as he would have called them, and synthesized it into a really great one-stop shop of a book. Yep, lovable characters, good and evil, magic that feels numinous, which is a word we keep using and I guess we should define again. Or yeah. Have we defined it yet? I don't think so. So numinous is like uh, the feeling of the divine or the other world, like mm-hmm. breaking in on your world. Yeah. And whether that's good stuff or evil stuff feels otherworldly. All right, so Tolkien did all that without making it feel overwrought. And he made this thought-out world that you feel like you could live in. Right. And, and I really want to emphasize that. You, you read those books and you feel like Middle-earth is a real place, not one that's propped up arbitrarily for a story. And that's not something that really applies to most of everything else that we've talked about so far. You read about Middle-earth, you understand the geography, the politics, the peoples. It's just three-dimensional in a way that I think nothing had really been before, not two-dimensional. And you get done with it, and as Ben alluded to in his baggage, you really want to know more about it, you want to live there, you're sad that you can't. It's got a whole giant appendix that people read and they're interested in, and then they go and read The Similarian. People just really responded to that. Once you've read Tolkien, you've read the standard of what high fantasy literature can do and should do, which is to build a complete world for nerds to live in. Yeah, it wasn't a massive success when it came out in the 50s, but it was adopted by the counterculture in the 60s, and the rest is fake history. Yeah, so in the 60s, Tolkien and let's not forget about Narnia, those are big deals. They're selling lots of copies. Writers want to write the next fantasy epic, and publishers want to find it and publish it. There's a lot of interesting stuff that gets done. Uh, Some of it's still beloved to this day, but None of it really hits big like Tolkien, at least not financially. Yeah, this is a lot of the stuff that I think you and I grew up with, Ben. You've got like mm-hmm. The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. 
That's an interesting story. It's about a gifted young man who goes to wizard school and assumes he's awesome <laughs> and he's right about everything. Unlike some other wizard boys I could mention. And almost gets himself killed. <laughs> has to be disciplined. Just for his pride. <laughs> Destroy yeah. the dark side of himself or whatever. You've got, man, you've got so many of these that I've read. The Susan Cooper, The Dark is Rising, which is a pretty good, okay, weird, not that great good and evil story for kids. That's what the Black Cauldron is based on, right? No, Black, Black Cauldron is from Lloyd Alexander. Oh, yeah. Chronicles of Prydain, right? I don't know how you say that word. Is that yes, how you say it? sounds great. I remember Lloyd Alexander was a thing, and I read a bunch of him, and I never really liked him as much as I thought I should. And I liked him a lot, but I read a lot of him, and I think if the more that I've gone back to him, the more I think, well, better for kids. There you go. And let's <laughs> not forget a wrinkle in time, which, well, we're not forgetting it. Let's uh, remember to round up all the copies, put them in a great big pile pour some gasoline on it and uh, light it on fire. Aw, I loved that book when I was a kid. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> but there's a reason that kids love that book. They're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. I like that book too. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sequels. <laughs> it's easy to think back on that. I haven't read it like you guys have recently, but it's easy to think back on that and think, that was pretty bad <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is but you can listen to our booking episode if you want more of my thoughts on that uh, during this era 60s you've still got 60s into 70s you've got Dragon Riders of Pern by Anne McAfee hey those books are about the planet Pern and people who ride dragons really <laughs> I'm shocked <laughs> now here's the thing about all that I wanted to mention that because I think those are some handles and some people from our generation will, and, and, mm-hmm. and up will probably remember those I don't know how many of those will last But the point is, none of those books really caught fire for the publishing industry. That would not happen until 1977 with, oh boy, The Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks. Ah, hooray, another part of my childhood. A crummy Tolkien (laughs) ripoff that I read several times. (laughs) Well, like we said, Ben, you were really sad when Tolkien (laughs) was Uh, done, which made you a sucker for this kind of thing. It really did. (laughs) Boy. Yeah, so you won't find many Terry Brooks apologists today, but that book was huge. Sold 125,000 copies in its first month. Yeah, and a lot of that was, I think, marketing. Like, 70s and 80s, that's the era of the blockbuster novel, hashtag Stephen King, etc. Yeah, Ballantine was looking to launch a fantasy imprint called Delray Books. And the fantasy realm of Shannara thought up by Terry Brooks was something they thought Tolkien fans will sink their teeth into. Yeah, and for better or worse, it was. Ben's our are living proof of that. Uh, it was huge. And and, that, and that's kind of the story, really. I mean, suddenly fantasy broke into the mainstream. Tolkien kind of kicked the door open, and then Terry Brooks proved that somebody else could walk through it. And the way was paved for things our listeners may or may not remember, depending on how old and how nerdy they are. Like the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever by Stephen Donaldson. Yeah, that one is gross. Don't read it. Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelzani. That one's crap. Don't read it. The Xanth novels by Piers Anthony. Also crap on every level. Do you guys like anything that was published in that era? Mm, Diana Wynne-Jones was at work in that era, and she is a pretty great, well, children's writer. Howl's Moving Castle, super fun. Super fun, quirky, romantic, fantasy, very lighthearted. She did a lot of fun work. That sounds good. It was good. Well, in the 90s, we went from blockbusters to backbusters <laughs> with giant million-page tomes. Like, and ghostbusters. And ghostbusters. Oh. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 
Well, you got your Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan, those massive tomes. Mm, boy. We also get the grim dark genre, which is fantasy where everything is grim and dark, just as horrible as possible as these dummies think life is. So thank you, George R.R. R. Martin and all your disciples. Guys, I feel like we haven't mentioned the most important work of fantasy written in the 90s. Huh? What? About a magical boy. Uh-huh. Kind of a chosen one. Um, yeah, yeah. He has to fight a great evil. Not ringing any bells, Jake. It's like the most successful thing ever. Could you be a little more specific, Jake? Well, obviously I'm talking about Percy Jackson. Oh, Oh, yeah! yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that about wraps up our survey of fantastic fiction. But, uh, whoa, Nathan, what about the big blockbuster fantasy novels of today? Like Brandon Sanderson, Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, They exist. You have any thoughts on them? I mean, Sanderson has fun characters and cool magic systems and universes. I don't know if he's worth investing the time it takes to read the gazillion pages of one of his novels. But I don't know. I haven't read a lot of them. Never read Rothfuss. How about you? Never read Rothfuss. Read a bunch of Sanderson. And yeah, it's kind of fun and it's kind of not. And Not really a lot of nutrition to it. For Definitely th- not. For the time it takes and the yeah. investment it takes. No, and it's an investment. It is. That wraps up our overview of fantasy. Wait, 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 wait. I just remembered. Don't you guys think we should talk about Harry? Harry, Duke of Sussex, the British prince married to Meghan Markle. Good point, Jake, but you know he didn't write any fantasy, so. No, come on. I, I was talking about Harry's, the quality men's grooming and shave supply company that offers you sharp, durable blades without upcharging. Why? Are they a sponsor, Jake? Do you see my beard? Of course yeah. not. <laughs> Well, guys, we still have a lot to talk about. Namely, we have to answer the question of, is fantasy good to read? But I think that's going to wrap up our episode today because we've gone for a long time. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of context for you and some ways to think about it. And we'll get into the meat of the discussion next episode, two weeks from now. Sound of Sanity was written and produced and executive produced by various people, including Ben Solzer, Nathan Alverson, and Jake Mensel. Go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity to support this ongoing work. Until next time, stay sane.